In 14th century southern France lived a woman named Beatrice de Planisol, and on today's episode, we'll be exploring her life, her sexual affairs, the contents of her purse, and talking about how she helped revolutionize medieval history. Hello, 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 and welcome to Footnoting History. My name is Nathan. Uh, today, I'd like to talk to you about Beatrice de Planisol. Now, if you're a medievalist, you know who Beatrice is. She's actually rather famous in medieval circles, but outside of medieval studies, she is rather less well-known. In her own day, she wasn't really that famous, at least not outside the southern French mountain town of Montaigu, where she lived. Within Montaigu, she actually had a somewhat prominent position. She was born into a very minor noble family, to a father who was a Cathar, or at least seemed to have harbored some serious Cathar sympathies. I've talked about Cathars before on the podcast. One of the first episodes I ever recorded was on the siege of the Cathar stronghold of Montsegur, but it's been a while since we've talked about them, so let's briefly recap. Cathars were a heretical sect that existed in southern France, in a region known as Languedoc, which is just north of the modern Franco-Spanish border, and northern Italy from the late 12th to the early 14th centuries. Where exactly Catharism came from is still largely unknown, though they do bear some resemblance to the ancient Manichaean religion and to another medieval religious sect, the Bogomils, who were primarily located in the northern Balkan region, so what is today Bosnia, Croatia, Serbia, Montenegro, that part of the world. The Cathar faith, such as we have been able to discern, was roughly dualistic, opposing a good spiritual god with an evil material god or devil. The physical world was the creation of this devil, and human souls had been tricked into fleshly bodies and were forced into a process of reincarnation. The only way to escape this transmigration of souls was to accept the teachings of the Cathar faith and undergo the rite of consolamentum, which was something between baptism, without water, and last rites. After undergoing the consolamentum, Cathars were forbidden from sexual activity and eating, well, much of anything, and so the rite was usually reserved for the deathbed. Much of Cathar belief was profoundly anti-clerical, stemming from a resentment of Catholic religious practice and the existence of a discreet intercessory priesthood. While Catharism was by no means feminist, in any modern sense of that term, it was slightly more egalitarian than Catholic Christianity. It was also deeply critical of the more abstract concepts of Catholic theology, uh, like the doctrine of transubstantiation. If transubstantiation were true, Catharism said, then if you piled up all of the consecrated wafers of all the masses that had ever been said, there would be a pile of Jesus taller than a mountain. This just did not make common sense to the Cathars, and so for them, transubstantiation was utter nonsense. Over the course of the 13th century, the Cathars and their sympathizers were the subject of a targeted military effort, known as the Albigensian Crusades. Following the end of the Crusades in 1229, the Catholic Church began a series of inquisitions in Languedoc to finally purge the region of heresy. These inquisitions would last for most of the next century. Which brings us back to Beatrice. As I said, she was born into a Cathar family, and seems to have grown up with exposure to these Cathar ideals, at least such as they were. Uh, there was no central Cathar text, and so belief tended to vary from person to person based on individual conscience and things that they had heard from other Cathars. It was a very grassroots sort of faith. When she was a teenager, she was married off to a knight named Berengar de Roquefort, 
who was the Chatelain, a guy who runs a castle, of the castle of Montaillou, and yes, this tiny village had a rather small castle. After less than a decade of marriage, Berengar died, and Beatrice moved out of the castle and down into the village of Montaillou, and then to the nearby village of Prade. There she lived for several years, until remarrying Otto Laglaise from the village of Dalou, who also died within a few years of the marriage. Between these two men, she had at least seven children. In July 1320, when she would have been about in her mid to late 40s, Beatrice was called to appear before the inquisitorial court of the Bishop of Parmier, Jacques Fournier. Fournier, who would one day become Pope Benedict XII, had been systematically attempting to ferret out the last vestiges of Cathar heresy from his diocese, which was largely rural and mountainous, making the task all that much more difficult. But Fournier was relentless, and during his investigations, he uncovered the reality that many of the residents of the small town of Montaillou were, in fact, heretics. Following denunciations that were, really, little more than rumor, Beatrice was ordered to appear before the bishop for questioning. Although she initially appeared of her own accord, she then attempted to flee before her second hearing, and was caught by officers of the Episcopal Court while in flight. She was subsequently interrogated and tortured before being imprisoned for a year, after which she was released, punished to forever wear a yellow cross sewn onto her clothing as a sign of a convicted heretic. So why is Beatrice so interesting? Well, it mostly has to do with the scrupulous records that were kept by Fournier's inquisitorial staff. Between 1318 and 1325, the inquisitorial court conducted 578 interrogations involving accusations of heresy for 98 individuals. These records take the form of a question-and-answer dialogue between the accused or witness and the inquisitor. In posing their questions, the inquisitors inadvertently uncovered and recorded a great deal of information and details about day-to-day -day life in a medieval rural community. Beatrice was particularly interesting, because the portrait that emerges from her testimony is that of a woman who exercised a remarkable amount of agency, particularly in her sex life. Over the course of her inquisition, it came to light that, in addition to her two husbands, Beatrice had had a number of extramarital lovers. The first of these was a man who was, in fact, her former rapist. During her first marriage to Berengar de Roquefort, a man named Patau, who was a member of the prominent Clerc family, raped her in the castle of Montaillou. Despite the assault, after Beringer died the next year, she and Patau began a brief sexual relationship. Uh, she also faced another attempted assault by the household steward, Raymond Roussel, a Cathar who attempted to get Beatrice to run away with him to join the Italian Cathar community. One night he hid under her bed and attempted to have sex with her after she went to sleep, but she screamed for the servants sleeping in the room with her, and Raymond fled. Beatrice's next paramour was Pierre Clerc, priest of Montaillou, cousin of her rapist-turned-lover Patau, and also a Cathar. One day, as she went into confession, Pierre proclaimed his ardent passion for Beatrice, causing her to run away from the church. Over the course of the next year, Pierre repeatedly made advances at Beatrice, who had various theological and ethical reservations about having sex with a priest, especially after having had sex with his cousin, which would make their union canonically incestuous. The smooth-talking Pierre was relentless, however, and he had a ready answer for all of her questions, insisting that it was not wrong for them to have sex, and that his priesthood was merely a cover for his Catharism. Finally, after over a year of advances, Beatrice gave in and began an affair with Pierre, much to the chagrin of his cousin, Beatrice's former lover. 
their affair would last for years. Even after she remarried, Beatrice says that Pierre showed up at her house one day and she took him into the cellar and had sex with him. During the course of their relationship, Pierre traversed a number of social sexual taboos. Uh, they would regularly have sex in the evening, only for him to get up and perform mass the next day without confessing his sin, which was a violation of church law. One night, he sent his young acolyte, Jean, to fetch Beatrice and bring her to a church where he had made up a bed for them to have sex. Beatrice protested against having sex in a church, but Pierre insisted, and they had sex anyway, and spent the night there. Pierre, I should also note, had quite the voracious sexual appetite himself, and had a number of lovers besides Beatrice. Following the death of her second husband, Beatrice then began a third affair with another priest, Barthélemy Amilac, who was tutor to two of her daughters. The relationship was clandestine for a time, as the couple would arrange their liaison for times when the servants and Beatrice's daughters were out of the house. But the affair did not remain secret for long. One of Barthélemy's rectors warned him that Beatrice had a reputation as a woman who would have sex with anyone, and, oh yes, she was a heretic. Owing to increasing public rumor about the relationship, Barthélemy and Beatrice, along with her daughter Philippa, fled across the Pyrenees to Payars, where they lived together for about a year. Based on Barthélemy's testimony, and he was also arrested under suspicion of heresy by association with Beatrice, it seems that their relationship was a tempestuous one, as the couple often fought over matters of theology because of things she had been taught by Pierre Clerc, and they would eventually split because of her Cathar associations. In addition to her various heretical beliefs, Beatrice also faced a charge of witchcraft. This is because when she was arrested, the purse she was carrying contained a number of objects, which the register said were, quote, strongly suggestive of having been used by her to cast evil spells. These included two umbilical cords, linens soaked with menstrual blood in a leather sack with seeds and burned incense, a mirror and small knife, some seeds wrapped in muslin, a piece of dry bread, various formulas and recipes, and bits of linen cloth. When pressed about these items, Beatrice said that the umbilical cords were those of her male grandchildren, and the menstrual blood was that of her daughter Philippa's first period. According to her, a Jewess who had converted to Christianity told her that the umbilical cords would, if carried on her person, cause her to win any lawsuit she found herself in. The same Jewess said that if she was to preserve the first menses of her daughter, and then, once Philippa married, to cut up the menstrual cloth into wine and give it to her husband to drink, that he would always remain faithful to her. The incense was for a headache, and the mirror and knife were, according to her, innocuous and harmless and not for magic spells. The contents of the purse are not the only time in Beatrice's testimony that such charms and spells appear. During her affair with Pierre Clerc, she was terrified of conceiving a child out of wedlock, as it would ruin her public reputation and social standing. In order to allay her fears, Pierre began to have Beatrice wear a linen sack around her neck and over her stomach during sex. This sack, which was the size of a pinky finger, contained some kind of herb that Pierre insisted would prevent her from conceiving, though he refused to ever divulge exactly what was in the bag. It seems to have, well, for a time at least, worked, because... Beatrice never conceived out of wedlock, at least not as she testified. Like the hundred other people hauled before Fournier's Inquisition as accused and witnesses, Beatrice's testimony also contains passing references to more mundane aspects of life in Montaigu, neighbors who stopped by to borrow some vinegar, gossip exchanged around a hearth fire, the intimate practice of delousing a lover while lying next to one another in bed, 
the kinds of goods that were bought and sold at markets, the rhythms of life in a mountain town. This rich documentation remained in the Vatican Library, underutilized until the 20th century. In 1975, the French historian Emmanuel Laura Ladurie published his most famous work, Montaillou, which in English has the subtitle The Promised Land of Error. Loa Ladurie had already published another book on the peasants of Languedoc, which was based on his doctoral thesis, but Montaillou was different. The work was one of the first examples of what became known as microhistory, the examination of a particular location for a brief period of time, very narrow in scope. In this book, Ladurie pours over the Fournier register, looking for small, seemingly insignificant details in the lives of the people defending themselves against the charge of heresy. Between the lines of the theological concerns of the inquisitors, he found a rich world full of social intrigue and unexpected behavior. While this was certainly not the first instance of a legal source being used to write social history, it was certainly one of the most popular. The book became a bestseller in France, and eventually the United States. In terms of history, it encouraged an entire generation of historians to look at their sources in a whole new light, to find the history of culture and society in new, unexpected places. And at the heart of this book is the story of Beatrice de Planesol. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. <laughs>